0: It's good to see you guys tonight. We are uh, just moving forward in uh, the process of covenant membership in this church and uh, taking time uh, over the weeks to just teach a little bit on it. Uh, Sunday mornings, elders have been sharing just uh, some of their testimonies of, of uh, what God's been doing in their hearts during this time. And, uh, and then these Wednesday nights, we've wanted to just take some time to come to the scriptures, address some, you know, FAQs or frequently asked questions uh, that we've been getting and, uh, and then open it up for just a safe forum to be able to ask uh, questions uh, to the elders and kind of uh, hear from you guys and for you to kind of hear from us. It's, you know, there's a lot to go over that in an hour teaching or 45 minutes as I usually go. Um, no, an hour. Uh, It's just a lot to go over, so um, these nights are good to just be able to communicate things that maybe don't even get communicated uh, in a a sermon or in a message. And so, uh, let me get my notes opened up here. So uh, tonight, uh, last week actually, we looked at um, a question. Are oaths and agreements and covenants and promises forbidden uh, in scripture, specifically uh, in From Jesus in Matthew chapter five verse thirty one through thirty three uh, or from James uh, referring back to Jesus, um, and uh, I would love to say if you missed that that you could listen to the recording, but the recording wasn 't working last week. How are we doing tonight? We got some lines on the little recording thing, okay, great um, and so uh, but we feel that uh, we 're probably going to be doing that message again soon on a Sunday morning if you missed that. Um, and uh, But tonight, a question that uh, we want to address is uh, concerning legalism and covenant membership. Is the covenant membership some form of legalism? So before we get into it, uh, let's just pray over our time together. Lord, as we come to your word, as we look at history, as we just look at context of scriptures, God, um, Lord, we just again, come humbly, Lord, um, we're just thankful that you've left just this incredible canon, Lord, uh, that you've revealed yourself to us, Lord, and we can come to it. And, and Lord, we want to rightly divide your word, God, and, and uh, any way that we have been airing, God, we want to just humble ourselves and, and let the word be our authority and, uh, in, in either case, God, uh, tonight. And so we just pray that you would speak, uh, that your word would just be that sharp double-edged sword that it promises to be. And uh, Lord, anything tonight that just uh, in our hearts needs to be revealed, um, Lord, would you just show us, even on just a private level, as we come to the Word, as we come to theology and doctrine? And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we want to ask the question, what is legalism? What is legalism? Uh, since In a variety of different ways, the word uh, and the charge of legalism is tossed around carelessly. Uh, We should define this term and see who and what does and does not deserve the label. Uh, We're going to just kind of go over three brief classes of legalism. The first one we'll spend the most time in, uh, class one of legalism. Uh, It's a belief That one can do something to earn God's favor or even obtain salvation. The majority of the world's religions are legalistic in their uh, sense. Uh, The rich young ruler who asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life kind of fits into this category. Uh, one might go to a scripture in this covenant membership process, like Galatians chapter five, verses one and two. I would actually just look at verse one: uh, "Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ had made us free; has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage." Uh, we can all say amen to that, right? This is a, a, a scripture we looked at on uh, the fourth of July last year at summer in the park. Um, But it's important to note the context of Galatians before you would apply this uh, to some kind of a covenant, like covenant membership. Um, The year was AD 49. Paul and Barnabas had just completed their first missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts 13 and 14. Shortly after the return to Antioch, Jewish Christians came up from Judea, They claimed that the Antioch church and its missionaries had been diluting Christianity to make it more appealing to the Gentiles. And so they challenged Paul's authority as an apostle. Some of Paul's accusers went into the churches in Galatia and insisted that the converts had to be circumcised and follow the Jewish laws and customs in order to be saved. According to these people called Judaizers, the Gentiles had to become Jews before they could become Christians. This caused a lot of confusion within the churches Paul and Barnabas had planted in Galatia. Uh, And so Paul wrote the book of Galatian uh, to the churches in the region of Galatia in response to this threat. He explains how the Jewish laws and customs won't bring about salvation, that a person is only saved by grace through faith. And so the theme of Galatians is don't depart from grace. Now the verses immediately following Galatians 5.1 help to explain this a bit more. It goes on to say in verse 2, indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace for we through the spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. And so we have the context of Chapter 5 here, just in the surrounding verses, that the issue here was going back to circumcision in order to be saved. And Paul says, essentially, if you are circumcised with that heart in mind, that you are relying now upon works for salvation, Jesus profits uh, profits nothing. And if you're going back to the law for this works-based salvation, you're a debtor to keep the entire law. As Paul wrote this, it was probably shortly before the meeting in front of the Jerusalem Council in AD 54, which settled the law versus grace controversy. Uh, In Acts chapter 14, verse 26 through chapter 15, verse 29, we're not going to read the whole thing, but Paul's on his way back from his first missionary journey. He sails to Antioch where he'd been commended to the grace of God for the work they'd completed. And when they'd come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so comes back to Antioch after his first missionary journey, incredible rejoicing that just a work of the Holy Spirit had happened and that Gentiles were being converted to Christ And so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And so this is kind of the context of the Galatian letter. But then chapter 15, verse 1, there's kind of a dun-dun-dun music happening as you read the historical account. Certain men come down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is one of the real first Instances of legalism that we see trying to creep into the church uh, is found uh, as the Gentiles are coming to Christ and these uh, formerly Jewish uh, believers are struggling in their own theology of how to balance, you know, the law and grace. And so uh, the the key phrase here is at the end of verse one, uh, you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised, unless you follow the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Again, it says in verse 5 that some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. This is, uh, there's a big debate that happens. Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem. They meet with the apostles there and there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, deliberation that takes place. There's a lot of discussion. There's a no small uh, uh, dispute there, and uh, and then the Lord works through James and through Peter, just some words of wisdom uh, and how to come in this debate. But uh, verse ten, real quick again, shows us the issue. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. And so what's happening is the Judean uh, Judaizers are heading up to Antioch and they're trying to put a yoke of legalism, a yoke of works-based righteousness upon the Gentile converts there. It's a yoke that that nobody in the Old Testament was ever able to keep. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says that, that what the law could not do and that it was weak in the flesh, God did by sending his own Son, and the likeness of sinful flesh. And and Jesus there uh, was the fulfillment of the law uh, for us. Uh, Even in verse 28 of this historical account, uh, as the disciples lay out that, no, you do not need to be circumcised to be saved, as they write a letter out, but they do say it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us in the letter to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So these Jewish Christians, these Judaizers, uh, and and you might, it's it's a debate whether you could even call them Christians due to their theology here. Um, They taught the Gentiles, may become Christians, but only after first becoming Jews and submitting to all Jewish rituals, including circumcision. Now, Paul preached in Acts chapter 13, verse 39, that by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so Paul preached that that there was no salvation, there was no justification Uh, through the works of the law, Uh, because we know that every man has fallen short from the glory of God. Having broken uh, even one of these commandments, James tells us, Uh, they've broken all of them. And so these certain men come down and they teach that Jesus saves us, but only after we've done all that we can do to keep the law of Moses. Now, Paul taught a man could only be right with God on the basis of what Jesus had done. And so a message from these Judaizers of you cannot be saved made this issue a non-debatable issue. This was not a side issue. It had to do with salvation itself. This was not an open-handed matter, a matter that there could be disagreement among believers with some believing you must put yourself under the law and some believing it wasn't important. This was an issue that went to the core of Christianity. It had to be resolved. And so in Jerusalem, these men, who used to be Pharisees, struggling, began to teach this false gospel. In Lystra, in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas would not allow pagans to merely add Jesus to their pantheon of Roman gods. The commandment that they had to turn from their vain gods to the true and living God, Acts 14.14 14. And so now, in, in, Jew, Jew, in a Jew country, excuse me, in Israel, the Pharisees who'd been Christians, had become Christians, had to do the same thing. They also had to turn. They also had to repent. From their efforts in trying to earn their way to God by keeping the law, they needed to now look to Jesus. They couldn't just add Jesus and say, Jesus helps me to justify myself through keeping the law. That's a works-based righteousness. That is a form of legalism. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, we read that we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. James' decision that Gentile believers should not be under the Mosaic Law is also tempered with practical instruction in the letter to all of these Gentiles. The idea in this was that it was important that Gentile believers not act in a way that would antagonize the Jewish community in every city and destroy the the church's witness among the Gentiles and among the Jews. If the decision is that one does not have to be Jewish to be a Christian, it must also be declared that one does not need to forsake the law of Moses to be a Christian. Yet immediately following in Acts chapter 15, the circumcision debate, Paul takes a new disciple on named Timothy in Acts chapter 16. And what does he do with Timothy immediately following all of this circumcision rigmarole? What does he do? He circumcises Timothy. He does this, not out of legalism, but out of a witness and out of a testimony to the Jews. We read of it in Acts 16, through 5 He came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, For they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep. Isn't that interesting? Big, huge church debate issue in a regional context. He goes off from there, immediately finds a half-Jew, half-Greek guy named Timothy, young guy, about 15 years old, and circumcises him for the Jews It was going to be a testimony. It was for the kingdom of God that Timothy was uh, circumcised. And in the midst of all the circumcision, they're handing out a letter that says, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And what is the result of that? Verse 5 tells us that the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, in another place, another disciple named Titus refused to be circumcised. I will not do this. And what is the purpose? In Galatians 2, 3, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And so we have two different times here. We've got a disciple Timothy, we've got a disciple Titus. One is circumcised and one is not circumcised. And what is the reason for both? The reason that Timothy is circumcised was because there wasn't legalistic pressure being put upon him to be circumcised. He was circumcised for the furtherance of the gospel in the the ministry that Paul was taking him on. Now Titus, on the other hand, was living in a day and age where the The legalists, the Judaizers, were hot on his case, sneaking into the church, trying to bewitch people, preaching a false gospel of works-based righteousness, and they would not yield to them even for an hour. So the issue here in the circumcision debate is, is this works-based righteousness? That's where the crux is in legalism. Is it works-based righteousness? Are we saved by works Do we earn God's favor through works? Now there's class two legalists who require believers to submit to man-made commandments as if they were God's laws. Thinking of the Pharisees who attacked Jesus when he didn't follow their rules for the Sabbath and the washing of hands and avoiding sinners. Or those who believe they are more righteous because they do or do not participate in certain Christian liberties Class three legalists obey God and do good in order to retain God's favor. Here we think of disciples who believe God's daily favor depends on their daily performance rather than on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When something goes wrong, they are prone to ask, what did I do to deserve this? Is God punishing me for something? Now, In the New Testament, there is a paradox, there is somewhat of a mystery of grace and works and how they uh, are intertwined. There are two equally dangerous errors within the churches, and the first is a tendency to promote rules at the expense of grace, to such a degree that it gives rise to legalism. The second error is a tendency to ignore rules while using grace as a license to sin. Both are clearly rejected in the scriptures and are to be avoided at all costs by those who love the Lord and his word. Our hope behind the covenant and the document is to give our members tangible evidence of God's grace so they may see if their lives are in accordance with the scriptures. It's important to note that the scriptures themselves do the same thing. In 1 John, while describing the necessity of an attitude of love, The author realizes there's a natural obscurity to such a word, love, and therefore he gives some clarity. Rather than merely saying, love one another, and ending with that, he gives real-life pastoral examples to help us qualify and understand this command. He makes the overarching command very tangible by speaking of our generosity towards others as an evidence of the reality of our love. In 1 John three sixteen through 18, we read, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother is in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so the goal is love, but generosity and giving is a test that determines the validity of our love. In this way, all of our moral obligations are merely our way of helping to paint a picture of what it looks like to put to death our old manner of life and to clothe ourselves with the newness of life that comes through the Spirit. In this whole idea of legalism, we want to Ponder our position and our perspective. First of all, our, pers- our, our position. We must keep in mind that the covenant membership is in no way intended as a means into the relationship with God. Positionally speaking, those to whom the covenant is addressed are those who have already tasted of the goodness of the Lord through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. While it's definitely true that we are brought into and kept within salvation by grace alone, such a belief does not negate the very real necessity of subsequent obedience and service to the Lord. This is the exact struggle that most of the writers in the New Testament battled. Paul, who is a champion and a defender of grace alone, writes in Romans 3.28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And then two verses later in Romans 3.20, since there is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Paul wrote in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? James, responding to a similar misconception of grace, responded by writing, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? In case you're curious, he expects the answer to be no. That type of faith does not save. Elsewhere he calls such a faith dead and useless. Well why don't we look at this James passage in James 2:14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, "Depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? That's a tough verse, so I want to pull it apart just for a second. Abraham was justified by faith long before he offered up Isaac. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. But his obedience later on in offering Isaac demonstrated that he really did trust in God. Verse 22 says, do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works, faith was made perfect? Faith and works, as I would take another pause, faith and works cooperated perfectly together in Abraham. If he never had believed God, he uh, he could have never done the good work of obedience that was asked in offering Isaac. As well, his faith was shown to be true. It was completed. It was made perfect, James says, by his obedient works. The faith only that will not justify a man is faith that is without works, a dead faith. But true faith, living faith, is shown, by, is shown to be true by good works. That alone will justify. John Calvin says, but James has quite another thing in view, even to show that he who professes that he has faith must prove the reality of his faith by his works. Doubtless, James did not mean to teach us here the grace, or excuse me, the ground on which our hope of salvation ought to rest, and it is this alone that Paul dwells upon. Works must accompany a genuine faith because genuine faith is always connected with regeneration being born again, becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus. And if there's no evidence of a new life, there was no genuine saving faith. As Charles Spurgeon is reported to have said, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. James goes on to say in verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see, then, that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. James thinks that it's impossible that someone can genuinely have saving faith with no works. But someone can say he has faith and fail to show forth good works. So the question is valid, can that kind of faith save him? Now, James wrote to Christians from a Jewish background who discovered the glory of salvation by faith. They knew the exhilaration of freedom from works righteousness. But then they went to the other extreme of thinking that works didn't matter at all. James did not contradict Paul, who insisted that we're saved not of works. James merely clarifies for us the kind of faith that really saves. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, but saving faith will have works that accompany it. As it's been said, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It has good works with it. Paul also understood the necessity of works in proving the character of our faith. He wrote in Romans 4, 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And Titus 3, 8 says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to, af- to affirm constantly that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. The great reformer and champion preaching of salvation by grace through faith alone, John Calvin, understood James's point. As he writes, but James has quite another thing in view. Oh, excuse me, I'm repeating a a quote again. Apologize. (laughs) The apostles were concerned that we would misinterpret grace as a license for sin or idleness. And so the covenant for us is not intended for those who are in a position of disbelief but for those who are already in Christ. Our position is crucial. Secondly, perspective. Perspective. We as followers of Jesus have not only the responsibility, but also the opportunity and the privilege to respond to his commands and imperatives with glad obedience. This is what's important about perspective. That the membership covenant simply enlightens us to opportunities of obedience to live out his design for the local church. We should desperately want to be conformed to the image of Christ. We should fervently desire to put off the old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desire, and to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, as Ephesians 4.22 says. We will fight for that because the scriptures say that we must and can fight for that. Granted, we do not fight alone. Our help and hope is the Spirit of God, but we battle nonetheless. The sinful flesh wants nothing to do with God and his holiness. It is by nature opposed to the Spirit And his work in us, Galatians 5.17 says. When we fall into sin, we feel the enticement of worldly desires. We should not remember the covenant and think, Oh yeah, I signed something that says I need to confess to this. Rather, we should remember the scripture which promises grace to those who bring their struggles into the light. And we should long for that grace. We should remember that we have the opportunity to fellowship with God and that unconfessed sin inhibits us from the fullness of that communion. All that we have done in this membership covenant is tried to sum up what Jesus has told us regarding following him. We are not adding to scripture. We are not negating grace. We are not promoting legalism. We are simply saying these are a few areas in which we have the opportunity to gladly obey the sweet commands of our Lord. When you read through the membership covenant, don't think, oh, I have to do all this. Instead, think, I get to do all this because of the gospel. Perspective is important. In the end, we want to command love, or excuse me, commend love for Jesus Christ. But this love must not and cannot be separated from obedient to his commands. As he said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Now we have examples in scripture of such imperatives, such necessary actions. We have always taught here at Calvary Chapel that the redemptive indicatives of scripture always lead to moral imperatives. In other words... In light of the wonderful news of salvation and the means God has gone through to bring about redemption from a broken, rebellious, and sinful state to adoption as sons and daughters of God, our lives ought to be marked by many labors of love, service, and holiness. These things are never done in order to gain salvation or favor with God, but rather to spring forth because of salvation the free salvation and favor that God has already won through grace. In our series a couple years ago called Gospel Family, we found the power to live healthy, God-honoring marriages comes only from the gospel itself. The spirit-informed and empowered appreciation to do what God has done to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. A key verse in our Husbands, wives, children, relationship was in Ephesians 5.18, where it says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on in the rest of the chapter, and even into chapter 6, to say, Wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Employees, obey your masters. And employers, honor and take care of your employees. All of these imperatives come from chapter 5 verse 18 that tells us how. That it's by being filled with the Spirit of God. Now this isn't just seen in chapter 5, but in the broader context of the whole book of Ephesians itself. There's two large sections of Ephesians and it hinges on Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called. There's a therefore there, which means it's a logical connector. What will follow this word therefore is the logical consequence of what preceded it. We talk about the redemptive indicative. It's what tells us and reveals to us and indicates to us that God has done incredible things for us. And that indicative will always move us towards action, which is called a moral imperative. It's an authoritative command that we then act in light of the good news. The imperative is urged and compelled from the indications of the gospel. He moves from what is in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, to what ought to be in chapters 4 through 6. And Matthew Henry writes, we must never separate the privileges and duties of the gospel religion. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, we see the first of many indicatives, the high and holy calling of the Christian. We won't go through all of them for the sake of time, but I just want you to get the gist of it. according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace then you jump down to verse eleven In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 13, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory." This is an unbelievable list of blessings that have been given to us as Christian and not one word in there asks or tells or commands us to do something just expresses to us what God has done for us In the gospel, there's more in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, 11 through 13, 19 through 22. We read our biography in this chapter, and he doesn't ask one thing of us. These are just the riches of the blessings that come from knowing him and and receiving his grace. What he's done and what he's made for us. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. More and more and more of the the telltale signs of the grace of God that's poured out through Jesus Christ. All of this is the riches of what Christ has done for us. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, the first half of the book are called the redemptive indicative. It's the statement of a fact of what God in the gospel has done for you. And then the hinge verse in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 6, he turns a corner in the book and he states a bunch of moral imperatives. He goes from what is to what ought to be. Paul says, let there be unity between what God has done for you and what you were called to do. And why do we bother with all of this? Because this is the Christian life. This is the spiritual life. This is the gospel life. This is the grace life. The gospel life is not do this and then God will bless you. The gospel life is, God has blessed you, now do this. Chapter 5 and following is not an independent piece in the book of Ephesians. Paul didn't say, you know, I've sure been writing a lot of theology here. It's getting deep. People are starting to wiggle and stir in their seats. So let's get things interesting and start talking about marriage. That's not what Paul was doing there. He was being strategic. And it misses the point altogether to get away from the gospel and just start preaching moral imperatives. This is what makes it all plainly Christian. Gospel living is not do and God will bless you. It's that God has blessed you, now do. And so with Paul, in the whole New Testament, every moral and ethical topic is an opportunity to preach Christ. There's an evangelical ring about it all. And so at Calvary Chapel, all of our preaching, teaching, counseling, discipline, it'll be less than Christian if it does not bring to the table the emphasis of the gospel. And so in the covenant, there's certain things that we want to agree to, be faithful to, as there's imperatives uh, from the text, there's implications from the New Testament, things like considering one another in order to stir up love and good works, being thoughtful about how we come to the the services and that we promise that we will pray for each other and consider one another and come having already been thoughtful and prayerful that we would come and regularly gather with each other these are things that we see in hebrews chapter 10 verses 16 through 25 now paul doesn't just say hey go to church there's no gospel in that there's no power in that What does he do in Hebrews chapter 10? He says, This is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds their sin and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now where there's remission of these, there's no longer an offering of sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, all of these things are redemptive indicatives. He's preaching the gospel. And so he says, let us do some stuff now. Let us draw near. Don't tell me what to do. You're getting legalistic. No, in light of the gospel, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of the faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so all of these things that we've been using in our church series to show that there are duties, there are privileges, there are responsibilities, there are obligations to those who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And two of those things are that we consider and have thoughtful deliberation in how we consider one another. And that we would come regularly to the meetings of this church. And all of it has come from, the, from the very first day we were teaching it, it has all come from the gospel, because that's how Paul preached it, or that's how the, uh, the writer of Hebrews, excuse me, wrote it. And then even just simple, plain readings, as, as we encourage people that would become covenant members, that they do have a gift, at least one, maybe more, and that gift has been given for the edification of the church, and its primary use is to be used within the local body context, 1 Peter 4.10 says, as each one has received a gift, okay we got that down, everyone has a gift if they're born again, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Even in one verse we have that God has poured out a kaleidoscope of grace upon us and we have a duty to be good stewards of that grace. If we're talking spiritual gifts, we've got to be thoughtful and prayerful about how to use this gift uh, in the local body context, that there be no lack. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, this is a spiritual gift chapter. It says, as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And so Paul's going to go on through chapter 14 to talk about spiritual gifts and that we've been given them. And because we're a body, every part of the body needs to be functioning and doing its gift uh, as we're joined and knit together to one another. Because if we're not doing our part and doing our share, as Ephesians 4 tells us, there's going to be a lack in the body. It's going to be a, an undeveloped body, Now, in preaching that in 1 Corinthians, Paul preaches the gospel. By one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. It's talking about the rebirth, the regeneration. And slaves and free and Jews and Greeks, we are all by the gospel made one. And because of that, it goes into the body is not one member, but many members. And every part has its share. As we talk about the responsibility of stewarding our resource and being generous givers. Second Corinthians 8 verses 9 through 11. These are just incredible gifts on, uh, excuse me, books, chapters on uh, benevolent giving. He preaches the gospel in verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. That is the gospel, guys. Every time you write a tithe check or give, you know, some grain or donate some hay or whatever it might be, you think of Jesus and you think of God the Father and you think of that ultimate gift that was given because Paul uses that in verse 10. He says, and in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing. And so he goes on to just remind them that you remember a year ago that you guys were all stoked and excited to get some gifts together to take back to Judea to minister to the saints there. And now you've totally forgotten about it. In chapters eight and nine, you guys are spankings on the Corinthians bottom because they had been slacking and lacking. And so he preaches the gospel to them and he says, Get to it. Don't be legalistic, Paul. Get to it. Jesus is the giver. And he says, he closes it out in chapter 9, at the very last verse, thank be to God for his indescribable gift. Get your eyes on Jesus and get giving. Okay? That's moral imperatives that come from redemptive indicatives. So those were just a couple examples of just how the things that we're calling the covenant members of this church to do Uh, That Those are things that spring forth from the gospel and are empowered by the Spirit. So the conclusion to it all is that this new membership covenant is not a contract intended to nullify, replace, or add to the covenant that Jesus Christ has made with believers for salvation. I hope that you're getting that. While the salvation covenant is one on a vertical level with God, The new member covenant is an agreement made on a horizontal level with fellow believers in Christ. It is not a list of things that one must do to be saved or to earn more favor with God. Rather, it is a commitment made with one another because we have been saved and have had the manifold grace of God poured out upon us. It is not a yoke to be placed upon your neck that neither you nor your fathers were able to bear, but the yoke that Jesus calls us to take, which, when motivated by the gospel and empowered by the Spirit, is easy and light. It is an assent to the design of Christ for our place in His church and a commitment to the participant in the imperative obligations already set forth in Scripture for those who have been saved by grace, and are now joined or knit together as members of a local body. Let's pray. Lord, as we just get a glimpse of legalism from Galatians and from Acts chapter 15, Lord, Lord, as we see the the Judaizers and their struggle coming out of uh, just the the religious machine of Judaism, not fully understanding grace. Lord, that is, a, that is a very good sobering warning for us. Lord, we do not want to fall from grace, nor do we have any desire to bewitch people, to turn from the true gospel and to follow another gospel that is not any good news at all. Lord, today we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the blood that was shed for the remission of sins. We thank you for the propitiation. Lord, we thank you for that gift that was made that appeased the wrath of God on my account and and on each person that would call themselves a Christian here. Lord, just as the elders just have looked over language of the documents and just want to make sure things are worded right so that there's just no misunderstanding that there would be uh, any sort of works-based righteousness or a list of things that's just to do and, and when you fail, you're condemned. Lord, we thank you that you don't put that on us, God, but you, you, you show us what you've done. You've shown us the great and high calling we have in you and Lord, by Your Spirit and by the imperatives in Scripture, You move us towards many just incredible works, God, so that You can be glorified in a Christian's life. And so, Lord, while this is a this is a topic that um, just to hear the the great preachers and the theologians teach, it's so deep, it's so deep. Lord, would You help us, help us in our minds to just discern and to wrap our our minds around the gospel of grace but lord also the commandments of the lord jesus that are to be obeyed and lived out in our lives lord as we go to a question answer time would you uh lord let us be gracious with one another lord and patient with one another god As as uh lord you've been so gracious and patient with us lord and And as the elders have just uh, had so much time to discuss and and think through and search scripture, Lord, just we thank you that you are a patient God and that love is patient and love is kind. And so, Lord, would you just do a work of your spirit here tonight at the Wednesday night uh, gathering of uh, of just bringing clarity. Um, Lord, any confusion, Lord, or any fear that comes from the wicked one or anything that's of the flesh, that's of the American dream, that's kind of got this independent, you know, don't, don't touch me, don't get in my space, isolationism, Lord. Lord, would you just cast that away even tonight, Lord? Thank you, God, that you've saved us into a community, and a community is what's gathered here in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.